Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Simore Podcast. I am your host today, Elaine. I am a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University, major in biomedical engineering. Today, we are going to bring you a special episode, which is the live recording of our Science Gone Show. So, what is Science Gone Show? You ask. The Gone Show is a science communication event where our speakers, the scientists, give brief explanations of their research. However, they need to watch out for their jargons. Each time a speaker uses jargon, our audience can ring their cowbells that sounds like this. The cowbells will then activate the gong that sounds like this. At this moment, the speaker has to pause and explain the jargon in more understandable terms. And hopefully, by the end of the talk, everybody has a good understanding of the research. Before we start, I want to thank Charm City Meatsworks, Project Bridge, and our audio master Jason for making this episode possible. So now, let's start the show. Welcome everyone to the Gong Show. My name is Jaime Genin. I'm a postdoc at the Department of Neuroscience. I'm very grateful that you came this night. As you might know, this is a it's a it's a fun event that we organize by Project Bridge, which they have like many different projects, which are destined for kids, for the community in general, for the community of Baltimore. We are also together in collaboration with Charm City Networks, and of course, we we spend a little bit of money for this. So we have to thank our sponsors, which are the John Hopkins School of Medicine, the Graduate Student Association, and also the Alumni Association. Today we are featuring ten talks. They are like diverse from different disciplines of science. So the rules are simple. Each speaker has five minutes to talk about their research or the field that they're working. If during those five minutes they give something that is、uh, jargon or something that is not very clear or very scientific, you can ring your cowbell. And then that will activate the gong. Abby, please, can you make a? <laughs> exactly. Once gong, then the speaker has to stop and try to explain what he meant with that jargon, what he meant, or to explain better the thing that was not very clear. And finally,、uh, we want you to evaluate the, the event. We want you to comment, but also you, we want you to select winners, and these winners are going to get the free best presentation and going to receive a. Nice prize from our side from the Gong Show event. So, nothing more to say. I would like to welcome Margot. She's going to be the first speaker, and her talk is called Mosquito Skit. So, please enjoy. Okay. So, I think it's time that we have the talk—a talk about the birds and the bees. Scratch that. About the birds and the mosquitoes. So, as you may or may not know, when a male mosquito and a female mosquito like each other very, very much, they synchronize their wing beats and they do a sex move that looks something like this. Within seconds, the male mosquito has skeeted into the female mosquito. At which point, a bunch of different things change in the mosquito. So, the female. Uh, will now reject any other mates that come her way. In fact, she'll actually keep the sperm in these little balls inside of her, and you can actually see the sperm swirling around in those balls. And at the very last minute, as the eggs come out, she'll let them be fertilized. 
So another thing also happens. So she's been holding on to her eggs until now, but after she mates and she gets to suck some tasty blood, she will then go and lay her eggs in that potter in uh, the back of your yard without any drainage. You know the one I'm talking about. Pour it out, guys, pour it out. Okay. So why am I talking to you about mosquito sex and reproduction? Um, is it because I am um, a weirdo? Uh, no. Uh, also, yes. Okay. But no, no. The reason I'm talking to you about this is because in the 1960s, they actually figured out that all these changes to the female do not require any sperm. So what's happening? Well, humans, if you may know this, when you guys uh, skeet, uh, only 10% of it is made up of sperm. The rest of it is all of this other junk that comes from other organs. And the same thing happens in the mosquito. Their sperm goes along with this fluid that comes from this organ that takes many different shapes and forms. You can see it in the blue in different insects. And what they found out is if you just take that blue organ, it's not actually blue inside of the insect, but if you take it and you inject it into a mosquito who has never mated before, she's a virgin, all of a sudden she'll think she's mated. She will reject any other suitors that come to her and also she will deposit all of her unfertilized eggs eggs. And so obviously that would be super handy if we knew what in the male was causing these changes in the females because then we could harness it to make all mosquitoes, the female mosquitoes, celibate and also egg wasters. And we want that because mosquitoes suck. Okay, so how am I going to figure out what this chemical cue is inside of the male that uh, he gives to the female to change their behavior? Well, I have six simple steps to get there. Okay, step one, we make a male mosquito uh, smoothie with all of their sex organs, yum. Then we take the chemicals from that smoothie and we separate them out based on different characteristics they have, like how big they are, or how much they like water, or if they have any negative or positive charges on them. And then we inject that into a virgin female mosquito, step four. We wait and see which one of those makes her lay her eggs. And then my favorite step, step five, we take that little mini smoothie that made her lay her eggs and we put it in a very fancy machine that costs a lot of money and it tells me what's inside of there. So now you might be asking, why is there a sixth step? You already figured out what's inside of the male that causes the female to change her behavior. Well, it's just like this thing. Um, I've been trying to hold it back this whole time, but oh my God, I think it's gonna come out. I think it's gonna come out. Uh, 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 for you transfer my Encyclotron residence. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, that's it. <laughs> thank you guys. It's a method used in this very fancy machine to separate different chemicals with different properties. It's called Fourier Transform Ion Cyclotron Resonance, and it would make a cool band name. Margot, thank you very much. So our next speaker is Michael Wixon. So a big applause to him. In the meantime, we will set up everything. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me here. So today I'm going to be talking about uh, bat echolocation. Uh, things are going to get a little batty, which is the fun pun I like to put on this. 
Um, so basically, bats echolocate to track moving targets, whether that is for a lot of bats a flying around insect. Sometimes that's just like a piece of fruit fall, falling off a tree, depending on the type of bat it is. Uh, I'm specifically looking at a species of bats that likes to hunt flies and other insects. Um, so they, the way they track is they send out these basically echolocation pulses that they do these frequency sweeps on in each pulse. Um, and the way that they produce the pulse and wait for that pulse return kind of tells them like how far away the insect is. Uh, and they're very, very good at this. So they can modulate or change the speed of their pulses within tens of milliseconds of timing with each other. Uh, each pulse is like maybe a couple milliseconds long, so they're calling extremely, extremely fast. Uh, and how fast is it? Well, this is a video slowed down 16 times uh, of a bat tracking a worm that's moving toward it. And you can hear the little clicks. Each one of those little bars is basically one of these pulses. So you see how fast that went? That was 16 times slowed down. And of course the bat completely whiffs on the worm in this case. Uh, it is fully in the dark, so we give it a little bit of credit. It came pretty close. Um, but, you know, they'll manage various uh, parameters like how far they are away from the target, uh, the presence of just any clutter in the environment, because often you're not tracking a fly or a worm in a lab environment. You gotta track them in the jungle or whatever space you're in. Um, and avoiding like jamming from other bats and their friends that are all making calls around the same frequencies and at the same time. So my experiment looks at how do they handle clutter in the environment because they're really, really good at doing that and we want to understand how they're doing that. Um, so to better understand this, basically we set up this experiment where we train a bat to sit on a platform. Turns out bats are really difficult to train, believe it or not. Uh, so that takes the majority of the time. Uh, and then we have these pairs of poles that basically are adjacent to where the target is coming from as a way of kind of distracting them from the target that's coming in. Um, so we have these four sets of pull offsets and we record their vocalizations. And one fun piece of this is we actually also care about how their head is moving. It turns out they like to move their head a lot while they're echolocating. Part of that is because when the sound arrives, there's gonna be differences between, you know, the ears it arrives, if it's coming from different directions. Uh, there's gonna be different parts of the ear it hits, which does a lot of funky things with how the sound arrives back. So we want to understand how are they moving their heads. So we glue this little crown on them, this water-soluble glue, don't worry. So like we can take on it off each time. And we have some infrared cameras that look at those little dots to let us reconstruct um, the angles of the head. So uh, this looks like a scary plot, but I promise it's not. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so on the top plot, what we're looking at is basically for each echolocation, how long is each echolocation over the time course of their tracking, right? And we want to look at the difference between a baseline case where there's no clutter in the environment and when there's clutter in the environment. It turns out when there's clutter in the environment and the clutter is really close to them, their pulses are more fixed on the clutter in front of them as opposed to like the worm behind them. So that's why the little dashed line represents where the clutter line is. You can see the black line and the colored lines are nice and separated right until that worm passes the clutter and then suddenly they kind of merge because that's how they're modulating their pulses. Um, what's interesting about this is you would think that the pulse durations and the intervals are tied together and they should be modulating in the same way. It turns out not. There's really no trend that separates clutter when they're with the pulse intervals versus baseline. So basically, they're able to independently change how long each pulse is and the spacing between them and very, very accurately uh, to track the worm as best as they can while navigating the clutter around them. So, 
Uh, from the head angle side of things, uh, we got some interesting results. What you would expect is that when there is clutter in the environment, they're going to move their head a lot more, right, to kind of sample the environment. Turns out the opposite is true. Uh, when there's clutter in the environment, it basically like anchors them and helps them know where they are, and you actually see a lot less head movement. So basically, in simplicity, what these plots are showing is the angular velocity, and you notice that when there's clutter, generally that angular velocity is more around zero, meaning the bat's not really moving their head as much, and when there's no clutter, they move around a lot more. Um, and we can look at this in the different conditions. Turns out when clutter is closer, they're more focused in, and when the clutter is farther away, it's basically as if the clutter wasn't there in terms of their head movement. Um, and I have a nice little schematic of how the different angles, how I'm calculating the different angles on the bat, uh, but that's basically about it. Um, my further experiments on this is going to be looking at um, how we can actually model the differences between the two and coming up with like more explicit models for that. Uh, but that's about it. So I'd like to thank my collaborators, my pets that keep me sane, and my wife that also keeps me sane. Uh, and that's about it. I don't know how I did Thank you very much for that baddie talk. <laughs>
Well, no matter how efficient your design is, the robot moves only as fast as the person rowing it. So just like that, uh, your multi-scale analysis is only as fast as the micro-scale analysis step. So to create a very fast multi-scale analysis, we train a deep learning model that looks at your material image and gives you the stress in that material, and thereby making the entire process extremely, extremely efficient in both time and energy consumption. So using this method to analyze the macro-scale structure, for this small millimeter-scale problem, it takes only 24 hours and we get the high-stress region. Engineers can use these high-stress regions to optimize the structure and create stronger materials in the region where it is needed, and it has many applications. And this is how artificial intelligence designs stronger structures. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ashwini. Another applause. And now, next talk is going to be given by Karan, if I pronounce it well. And it's called Conversation in a Cafeteria. All right. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Karan, and I'm going to talk about a conversation in cafeteria. Let's say uh, we are all in a situation, and uh, we want to talk with one of our friends. We're meeting for the first time, and we walk in the cafeteria. So once we start walking inside the cafeteria, we know that there is this plethora of sound that is coming around us, and we have these different soundscapes around us, and we are still somehow we, we are able to provide or pay attention to the friend that we are attending to. So uh, this is this phenomena in essence is called the top-down attention and is basically your brain's executive attention power which will give your brain that access to the, uh, the access to the part of the brain which activates the person's voice you are speaking to. So for example, if right now there is something going on in the background and you can, there is a lot of sounds around coming here, but somehow still you can understand and comprehend what I am trying to speak over, this, uh, over the microphone. So this in essence is about understanding and working with how the brain, brain pays attention to a particular audio and then depending on that we have we, are, we try to understand it using different kinds of models and uh, try to computationally model it. So when I say computationally model it, we try to build models which kind of mimic this behavior and apply it to different uh, different uh, different on its devices, which kind of make uh, which which make it really interesting for. Uh, for, for, for like Google Home, like devices like Google Home and Siri uh, to be much and much better at the way we are speaking. So this, uh, so for example, as I continue keep talking and there is, let's say there's something that happens in the background and we kind of, 
exactly. So this this is something, for example, let's say something goes in the background and our attention shifts directly uh, to this stimulus that kind of draw away our attention from what what I was speaking. So like we have all these weird kind of sound, sounds that are coming from around and. Uh, this is how we kind of try to understand uh, the brain using different kinds of models and once we do that we mimic it in computers so that we can recreate this uh, behavior and understand the brain better. So, that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. As a last speaker of this section, we have James, and he's going to talk about technology to analyze tremors. So, a strong applause. Hello, I'm Jim Brasic. I'm a neurologist, child adolescent psychiatrist. I have been working with people with movement disorders, and I have been using various rating scales to assess people using visual observation. I have come across some challenges. So my story is how I'm aiming to improve that process. And I'd like to point out that I'm a physician, so I really need the collaboration of technologists, and I welcome opportunities to work with each of you. Let me focus today on the issue of analyzing a tremor. Now, what is a tremor? A tremor is a rhythmic movement, a regular rhythmic movement. And this can be present in a number of disease conditions, but it also is part of our normal physiology. So there are cycles that each of us has, and the representation of a tremor is one of those. So I'd just like to point out to you that we each of us has tremors. I consider myself to be a healthy you know, man with typical development, and I believe that I have a tremor. One way to emphasize that is, say, to put a piece of paper here. And I think that if you look at this carefully, you can see that at the edge of the paper, there is a rhythmic oscillation. That's about six cycles per second, six of the movements up and down. In some disease conditions, that can be accentuated, and that can be characterized by some abnormalities, such as halts, interruptions in the movement, changes in the amplitude. So you can see that the tremor goes up and down. There's a peak and a trough. That's a regular rhythm. And my rhythm was, was regular. It didn't go way up or way down. There weren't stops. There weren't decreases in it. Those can be characteristic of some disorders, such as Parkinson's disease. So I have been delighted to have the collaboration of folks who have helped me to work on this problem. An approach that has been provided has been to provide a, an accelerometer. That's a device that measures the position in space, the XYZ dimensions. And we place that on the extremities of people to give a signal that represents the tremor. So, well, with me, you can see that the tremor goes up and down. What we're aiming to do is to get a, an objective way to analyze this in terms of a signal. 
This is a representation of signals of tremors. If you look at this, we're saying that on the x-axis, we're looking at time. On the y-axis, we have the amplitude, that is the height of the movements. If you look at the zero, there is a green line. That is a the absence of a tremor. But if you look at that really very closely, you can see that actually there are fluctuations there. So the six cycles per second that I was demonstrating exist even in the healthy person with without a tremor. When people have Parkinson's disease and other conditions, the tremor can be much more severe. These are some examples of various types of tremors. And you can see the blue represents a severe tremor. The representation here is relatively regular, although we can see even with the severe one, there is some decrement here in the amplitude of the tremor. One of our goals is to improve the representation. And I'm really delighted to Margot for introducing the concept because a Fourier transform is an ideal way to improve this. So we could see that with the signals, we have the time represented here on the x-axis and the amplitude, the height, on the y-axis. For a Fourier transform, it's represented in a different way. So it's a summary way, and the frequency, that that is the number of cycles per seconds or hertz, are represented on the x-axis and the amplitude continues to be represented on the y-axis. We have the tremors of the varying magnitudes. The normal one without a tremor is really roughly, is, is barely visible here. What we can see with the Fourier transform, though, is that the signals are represented very clearly. And so with all of these signals, the rate has been around, the, the key rate is at six, cycles per second, six hertz, and there are harmonics at 12 and 18 hertz. This is a, a, a better way that engineers have been suggested to look at this. I'd like to really develop even a more compact way to represent this, to distinguish people of tremors of varying severity. So we would like to look at the concept of a continuous wavelet transform. <laughs> so I'll bravely proceed uh, where Margot left off. So with this continuous wavelet transform, we're aiming to express in a very, very compact picture the key points that were represented in the other ones. So for this one, this is a representation of a mild tremor. So for this, we're, we're representing time on the x-axis in a very compact way. This is a mild tremor. And here the frequency that is the height, top and down, is represented on the y-axis. But look at the way it's represented. This is on the, the left-hand side here. We have the frequency represented. A way to represent the amplitude, though, is by means of the color scale. So if you look at the far right over here, you can see that the bright image, yellow, represents a greater amplitude, and blue, a lesser amplitude. 
if we look at the output here at about six hertz, that's the baseline, we can see a roughly level line. We can look at the image and we can see that the yellow here is pretty regular, but it, it, the color decreases here. That means that the amplitude is going down. Additionally, at the around 23, there appears to be an interruption in this. So th this is a very compact way to represent each of these ideas. Additionally, so we have the, the baseline here, and at uh, around 12 hertz, we have a harmonic, 18, another harmonic, so this is a compact way to represent a mild tremor. I'd like to go on then to look at a severe tremor. And this is something that is much different. So again, look, we have time on the x-axis, we have the frequency on the y-axis, the color scale here. There is a roughly continuous path here around six hertz, but you can see that the color is varying markedly. Uh, so also there is an increase in, here in the line, that means it's going getting faster. Here it's going down, that means it's getting slower. So this, there are interruptions in the regularity of this. Additionally, there are complete breaks here around 10 hertz. There are really interruptions altogether. These are some of the key features of problems that people have with Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders. Thank you very much, James. Now we will have a break. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the five talks that cover drastically different research areas that are going on in Baltimore. If you're interested in the graphics shown by our speakers, or if you're a little puzzled by what is described in the show, please check out our show notes. We have linked all the presentation slides there by our speakers. Next time, we will bring you the second half of The Gone Show. We have another five intriguing talks that cover everything from how not to fall, how does the brain read codes, synchrony of neurons during decision-making, how glass breaks, and antimatter. So please make sure to tune in for our Science Gone Show special episode part two. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>